there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. To objectify is to degrade to the status of a mere object. Back in the day, it used to be the feminist scholars came up with sexual objectification, which is what men did to women, made women sex objects. And you'll notice the chauvinist pigs are all kind of rolling their eyes and, you know, oh, God, those feminists and blah, 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 blah. And it's not about that. Either side of the pendulum is ridiculous as far as I'm concerned. Men didn't do that to women, but men do that to women. Women do that to themselves, and women don't do that to themselves. They just acquire that by growing up in our society. Nobody's to blame and everybody's to blame, but that's really not what we're here for. We're not here to see whose fault something is. We're here to understand, to discover, to be able to relate one thing to another so that we can have a more realistic view of our universe to see things as they really are. The reason I bring up objectification is because there's something important in that that is missed in all of the political falderal. Esoteric teachings aim at self-objectification. Wow, with something that exciting, I can see the lines forming outside right now. Yeah, people are going to be beaten down the door so that they can have some self-objectification, so that they can degrade themselves to the status of mere objects. Doesn't that sound exciting? Oh, yeah. Sign me up. I want some of that. As you may have surmised, this is extremely distasteful to the self-love. The self-love doesn't like that at all. Uh, me? A mere object? <laughs> That's ridiculous. I'm unique. I'm special. I'm the center of the universe. I'm me. What's it going to do for you? What is the purpose of self-objectification? It doesn't sound like it's much fun, so why bother? It doesn't feel good, look good, or taste good. So what possible good could it be? Of course, all of these things, it doesn't feel good, look good, taste good. What's it going to do for you? What purpose? Why bother? All of these questions come from false personality, don't they? It's the one thing they all have in common. They all come very readily, profusely from false personality. False personality gushes these questions and gushes objection to these things. We were talking, the, maybe it was last week and sometime this Sometime in this lifetime, someone said, <laughs> I object to that. And I said, you object to that? And the person said, yes. I just laughed. I thought it was funny. You know, people, it was just, it was a false personality ejaculation. You know how sometimes when just you ejaculate something, it just comes out of your mouth and you, and you, you look at it and you go, I wish I hadn't said that. <laughs> but then sometimes... Because our pride and vanity are so intact, they have such a death grip on our throat that we can't relinquish the stupid thing we've said. We have to defend it because we think we said it and we think we'll look stupid if we don't defend it and make it look good, even though we know it's stupid and we don't really want to stay behind it. Did this happen to you too? Oh, yeah. All right, good. You're looking at me like I'm the only one. And I'm thinking, you know, either I'm the only one or you haven't really taken a look at yourself, <laughs> which in the world is pretty common. You could stand up in a group of regular people and say something like that and go, yeah, you sure are. They would go, yeah, you sure are an idiot. 
Maybe one or two people in a big crowd of hundreds might say, yeah, I've done that. But normally that's not the way it is. Normally people don't look at themselves. They, they look at other people and judge them. They don't look at themselves and, and see that about themselves because they, they can't self-objectify. They can't objectify themselves. And so we're starting to find the purpose. What purpose? Well, what good could it be? We may see the benefit of objectification of others, making other people mere objects. What would be the benefit of making other people mere objects? Classified. They're easily classified, that's right. So we can stereotype, we can have prejudices, we can just sweep them aside in mass. Logically, it could keep you safe from the pain of caring. If you objectify people, you don't have to care about them. They're just objects. They can't really hurt you. So you've found a way to be kind of invulnerable, haven't you? I see some people smiling. You know what they say, there's always a tender nerve behind the bull's eye. And sometimes it makes the bull smile. (laughs) We're not aiming at being logical, though. So staying safe from the pain of caring, from the anxiety or the, the loss of relationships or people who you don't objectify. You let people close, you could be hurt. That's all logical, but we're not trying to be logical. We're trying to find a new way of thinking and a new way of looking at life and a new way of living life and a new way of experiencing life and finding out what life is really like, what reality really is, not what we have imagined it to be, not what we want it to be, not what we twist it around to be emotionally with our emotional gymnastics or what we twist it to be intellectually with our mental gymnastics. This came home to me recently in an interesting way. Jess was over at our house talking with me one day. And after he left, Connie said, are you angry at Jess? You sound like you were angry with him. I said, no, not angry at him. And I could hear it in my, no, I'm not angry at him. And I could hear this, I could hear this edge in my voice. And I thought, I knew what she was talking about, but mentally I was not angry. And emotionally I was not angry. So then what was it? Well, I wasn't angry. Then just the other night, Diana came by. Now, they both had problems, and they both came to have, have me have a look at or share with them some perspective about their problems. I hoped in the, the hope of seeing it in a different way so that they could get out of it. Well, what I noticed is that when people come to me and they have a problem and, and they're not seeing the way out, when I show them the way out, an edge comes up in my voice, and I, some kind of position, some kind of state starts to manifest. So after some time observing myself, the light of consciousness slowly began to dawn in me. It wasn't my voice, but the voice of my father that I'd acquired growing up. I started to realize that I actually stepped apart from the state, the sound of the voice, the whole feeling. I could feel the sensations. I could see all of this, but I stepped apart from it. And as I looked at it, I went, Dad, that's you. I actually saw my father operating living, speaking, gesticulating, using this body. And I thought, well, that's very interesting. Now, my dad is dead. You know, so I was possessed by a ghost, I guess you could say. <laughs> because it really was a possession. I mean, really, it really was a possession. It really was something else using my mind, my mouth, my body. Because it wasn't me. Now, I know this won't hold up in court, but I didn't commit a crime so I don't have to worry about that. Blaming people for their problems and situations may be accurate, but it's not helpful. When I say it may be accurate, what I mean is Jess's problem is Jess's fault. Diana's problem that she came to me with was her fault. They stay in it 
because they are holding on to the anchor that keeps them in it. And when they don't let go of the anchor, I have acquired this state where it blames them for not letting go of the anchor. It blames them for staying in the state. It blames them not so much for being in it, but for staying in it once I have shined the light on their little problem. So you start to get the the smell of this. It's kind of stinky. It doesn't really smell very good because it smacks of superiority. And we don't really like that in other people. So we really don't like it in ourselves because we don't like it in other people. We really don't like it in ourselves. And that's why we don't see it in ourselves. But if you are courageous enough or dumb enough to see it in yourself, then you have a choice. You can either not like yourself or start to understand that about other people, which I think is the higher road. This is a case of truth over goodness or mercy. Yes, the truth is you did this to yourself, but so what? That's the truth you stone people with. That's when you take up stones. You were caught in the very act of adultery. The law says stone such people. And that is that level of truth. It's the level of truth that can see, yes, this is, this is right and this is wrong. So there is that level of truth. But it's a very low, cold, hard level of truth. But it's still the truth. Have you ever had someone say to you, someone say something nasty to you, and then you protest or you wince or whatever you do, and they say, well, it's the truth, isn't it? And they kind of rub a little salt in the wound that they just opened up there. Yeah, it's the truth. And the truth should never triumph over goodness and mercy. When it does, it just tells you that you are contracted and that you cannot expand your consciousness to the place where you can reach the levels, the better neighborhoods, the better influences of goodness and mercy, which is the end goal of all of this. To see another as he is demands us first seeing what we are like ourselves, becoming more conscious of ourselves. The interesting thing about Diana was that as I was talking to her, she was not getting anywhere. And I was not getting anywhere. And I could, then I started to hear this voice. And then I remembered what Connie said to me about being angry at Jess. And all of a sudden, as soon as I saw it, I decided, well, that's not me. I didn't really decide that. I saw it when I was seeing it. I wasn't being it. And as soon as I wasn't being it anymore, I noticed that my entire tone, manner, everything completely, drastically altered with Diana in an instant, in a flash. And the moment that it did, Diana got off it. Now, I'm not saying she didn't have the problem. I'm saying that suddenly her whole countenance changed. She didn't look hard and contracted. She softened and smiled and you could see her body kind of relax and she wasn't so tense. And I thought that was all very interesting. I observed all of that. What I realized was that as I became more conscious of myself, it was easier for Diana to become more conscious of herself. We must first establish some kind of I that can objectively observe ourselves before we can expect to become more conscious of ourselves in ourselves. We have to become more conscious of ourselves in ourselves. What we do is we become conscious of ourselves outside of ourselves and we judge it, we resist it, we justify it, we deny it, we push it away, we hide it in the dark. But when we become more conscious of ourselves in ourselves, it's a whole different thing. It's a whole different taste, a whole different feeling, a whole different smell, a whole different experience. External considering is always conscious. It's always anti-automatic, and it always requires effort on our part. So in a sense, the moment that I had when I realized that this blaming edge was not I gave me the space to not be it, and then to realize that then that's not Diana either. 
that thing that she's stuck in right now isn't her. As soon as I realized that this wasn't me, then I realized that wasn't her. And when I realized that wasn't her, there was nothing to blame anymore. The whole argument was gone. The whole connection, the whole relationship just evaporated. It was just gone. It just literally disappeared. There was no reason for it. There was no reason for it to exist. There was no reason for it to be. So it couldn't be. Internal considering is always effortless. It's always unconscious and automatic. It runs all by itself, making the world a much more unpleasant place than it really needs to be. And let's face it, people don't go around trying to make other people's day unpleasant. We do it automatically. We don't even have to think about it. It takes no effort, no consciousness whatsoever. Well, other people are just too sensitive. Well, they just aren't paying attention. Well, they, they, if you moved your big feet, I wouldn't have stepped on them. Well, if you didn't take up so much space, well, if you didn't leave it there, then I wouldn't have tripped over it and broken it. Do you see how it's just so automatic? It just flows from false personality. It ejaculates from us, from the wrong part of us, the part of us where we live and the part of us who we think we are, actually. And that's what we're trying to change. External considering means you put yourself consciously in the position of the other person and you see yourself in him and him in yourself. We talked a little bit about this last week, but I thought it would be important to follow it up, you know, kind of like a one-two punch. Maybe we could connect it up with some other things. You have to listen to the person internally. In order to externally consider, you have to listen to the person internally. You have to listen to them inside of yourself. You can't listen to them outside of yourself. You have to listen to them inside of yourself, from inside of yourself. Do you know what this means, to listen from inside of yourself? It means in your innermost being. It doesn't mean in your head, up here. It means in here. In your innermost being, you listen from that place inside of yourself that you're beginning to discover through esoteric teachings, where magnetic center is, where these ideas kind of gather to find warmth and strength and to defend themselves against the onslaughts of the world and your personality that's trying to logically get rid of them, take them apart, or even dissect them or understand them. Do you feel the difference? You have to feel the difference here. Because if you just pay attention to my words, it won't work. You have to feel the difference between the part of you that analyzes and dissects and, and is skeptical and digs and picks and the part of you that allows these ideas to soften you, allows these ideas to influence you, the part of you that's willing to marinate in this work. You put yourself consciously in the position of the other and you see yourself in him and him in you by listening internally, by finding the corresponding thing in yourself so that you can reflect the person in yourself. It's the same way as, that a, as a mirror. When you look at the other person, you're really looking at them and finding yourself in them. You're looking into a mirror and you're finding yourself in them. And when you're doing it internally, you're not denying it, you're not justifying it, you're not finding fault with it. You're just looking at it. It's like mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And the mirror was a liar. Do you remember the, the fairy tale? Was it which, which, Sleeping Beauty, wasn't it? No. Sleeping Beauty? Okay, Sleeping Beauty. You guys, I, I can't believe you. Look, you look, come on, nobody. Sleeping Beauty. The, the witch, she found this beautiful princess and she, she put her to sleep because she was more beautiful than this witch. 
So the witch had this mirror, this magic mirror, and she would say to mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And the mirror would lie like a rug and say, well, you are, you're just so wonderful. And of course, Sleeping Beauty was asleep, so nobody knew about her, so there was no beauty to compare to her beauty, so the mirror could lie with impunity. And also to save its own mirrorly skin, if that's possible. It's a fairy tale, okay? And a fairy tale is really an allegory, and an allegory is really just another way of it's a way of talking about a truth that cannot be talked about directly, but it has to be experienced. It has to be looked at from a different way, in the same way that I was talking about having this thing sit in your lap, and suddenly you discover it, and you experience it in a different way in that moment of discovery, in that moment, in that fresh moment, you have just a flash there where you can experience it before your mind starts to conceptualize it and identify it and analyze it and say, oh, that's what that is. Before your mind starts to name it, you can actually experience it. This is what we're trying to do with the truth. You can actually learn, you can train yourself to live your life like that, to experience your life instead of think about it. I know, what a concept, huh? <laughs> Does it give you an idea how far you are from it? Yes. Yeah. Good, good. And, and it's okay, you don't have to look so glum. <laughs> oh, I'm so far, oh, I'll never make it. Don't worry about it. It just happens moment by moment. There's no place to go. This is it. There's no place to get to. There's no place to go. There's, there's no, we're not going anywhere. Everything, enlightenment is in this moment. It, 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 this moment is, it's all here. It's all right here, right now. You either let yourself find it now, let yourself be in it now, or you let yourself be in it now and you let yourself find it now. And if you can't let yourself find it now and be in it now, then don't worry about it. Just let yourself find it now and be in it now. But you see that but the willingness to just let it go does so much more than all of the, <clears throat> the internal cranking of your intellect and your emotions and trying to grasp and cling and grab and get. Just let it go. Be happy. Be a bunch of happy idiots like me. <laughs> okay, well, or don't. That's okay too. You don't blame, but you accept, creating the space for the other person to alter. You see their state and remember that you were in that state. With Diana, it was all of a sudden I realized that I had been in that state. I had had someone blame me. I had gotten there of my own free will, my own accord, my own stupidity, my own sleepedness, you know, my own mechanicalness. I had gotten in, a, in some mess and someone blamed me. So I knew what it was like to not be able to get out. Someone told me how to get out and I couldn't get out. And in seeing that in yourself, remembering that, remembering that, then suddenly... You give the space for the other person to, to remember something too and to alter in their own way. And it's not for them necessarily. I didn't do it for Diana. It just happened. It happened because I became conscious of something in myself. Then something happened in her. It's like we're all connected. I know I've said that a million times, but nobody believes it. And that's good. Don't believe it. You want to experience it. Why believe it when you can experience it? And once you've experienced it, you don't have to believe it. Who believes something that they know? You don't believe it. You know it. What would you rather do? Believe something, which means not know it, or know it, experience it? Well, I believe I'd like to know the good things and believe the bad things. <laughs> Intelligence is seeing the truth of a thing. Isn't that a great definition? Intelligence is simply seeing the truth of a thing. External considering is a deep internal act based on an increasing consciousness. It's an internal act because you have to become more conscious of yourself in yourself. When you become more conscious of yourself in yourself, you automatically become more conscious of other people. Because the other person, when you become conscious of yourself in yourself, you find the other person in yourself. And you find yourself in the other person. Can you see this opens up a whole new understanding about people? 
Can you see that that kind of understanding could alter your relationships drastically? Real love is always conscious. Real love is never blind. There was a joke. Somebody said, uh, I don't know why they say love. <laughs> oh, he saw his, his, friend, his friend's new girlfriend. And he said, I don't know why they say love is blind. That guy sees a lot more in her than I ever did. Real love is more conscious. It's always conscious. It's never really blind. So external considering, the deep act of external considering, is based on an increase in consciousness because the act of external considering is the act of love. Literally, that's what love is. Love is being able to find the other person inside of yourself and find yourself in the other person. Unless you can do that cleanly. You have to do it cleanly. Useless suffering is finding the same state in yourself that you found in another person and trying not to blame the other person and calling it self-sacrifice. In other words, you see this state in yourself and that helps you to recognize it in the other person, but you don't really recognize it in yourself. It's what helped you to see it in the other person, but you don't look at that. You only notice it in the other person and then you don't point it out to them and you call that self-sacrifice. And that's really useless suffering because that whole thing, that whole condescending superior thing is worthless because it falls directly on false personality. It empowers false personality and you, the real you, this work gets nothing from it. So it's useless. It's useless, unnecessary, it's a waste of time and energy because that's not what we want. External considering mustn't be shown outwardly or it may become condescension, falling into false personality. That's based on the idea that you know better. This is what superiority and condescension is all about. I know better. When we base anything on the idea that we know better, we're already in superiority and we're, we're going to be condescending. We have to take a look at that in ourselves. How often do you know better? I was talking to somebody the other day and they were telling me what their daughter was going to do and wasn't going to do and what their daughter had to do and didn't have to do. I said, when are you going to let your daughter live her own life? Well, I do let her live her own life, but not about this. <laughs> which, which was honest. You know, not about this. It's not, not time. Not about this. In other words, I'm still too connected to this. I'm still too identified with this to let my daughter live her own life about this. So if she lives her own life about this and makes a mistake, then it's going to reflect on me. It's going to hurt me. And so I can't let her live her own life about this. Okay, I understand that. I understand what that's like. And that's something to look at, something to work with. We have a goal. We have an aim now. In external considering, you put yourself in the position of an external person. The difference between external considering and internal considering is in internal considering, you think only of yourself. In external considering, you put yourself in the position of an external person. The first, external considering, is objective. The second, internal considering, is always subjective. One is subjective, how it relates to me. The other one is objective because it sees the two things out there relating to each other, not related to me subjectively, but objectively. Because the two things is that other person, that external person is objectified and you are objectified. The two objects that share the same thing and you see how they relate. It's really huge when you begin to have this experience with someone who you've not been able to have the experience with before. Maybe you have it with other people, but that's wonderful and that's good and that maybe you don't have it, I don't know. But when you start to have it with people that you can't normally have it with, it's a huge breakthrough. 
Objective consciousness is seeing things as they really are. The mind doesn't understand this definition. The mind doesn't know what it means to see things as they really are. The mind thinks it sees everything as they really are. What? This is a chair. This is how it really is. Everything around it is not chair. That's how I know this is chair. So the mind likes that. I'm not the chair because... I can see the difference between me and the chair. The chair is not the carpeting. I can see that the carpeting ends there. The chair begins here. So everything that's not it is this is what defines it is everything that's not it. Objective consciousness is seeing everything together. Well, then how do you separate things? How do you tell what's what if you see everything together? Well, you see everything together, but you see how they relate to one another, their relationship to one another objectively, not as separate objects, but how they are related to one another objectively. Until we've reached the state of objective consciousness, we can't really grasp the state of objective consciousness. When I say reached it, all you have to do have done is just touch it. If you have just touched it at some point where you have objectively seen anything, you know the flavor, the taste, the smell, the feel of this state. And so you begin to be able to grasp it. But you grasp it with something other than your mind. A good mirror distorts nothing. It's not subjective. It shows you exactly what you're like. It's funny because I was putting on my jacket this morning. I was standing in the closet. And across the hall from the closet is a pantry with a sliding glass doors. But they're mirrors. And one door slides behind the other door. So all of a sudden I looked up and I caught my image, caught the image of myself in the mirrors but it was interesting because I was standing right where the two mirrors joined. And it made me look slimmer than I actually am. And I looked and I was shocked because it looked like a younger, skinnier me in the mirror. And then I stepped to the left a little so that image of my body was just reflected in one mirror. And it looked like I look now to me. I don't have any idea what I really look like or what anyone else thinks I look like. I only know that it looked to be what I recognize myself to be. I thought, that's interesting. The one mirror, the two mirrors together distorted my image, but the one mirror alone gave me a real, non-distorted, objective view. So one gave me a subjective view. You see that the, the two mirrors together gave me a subjective view. It, it made things, it distorted things so that I couldn't really see how they really were. But the one alone gave me a more objective view, showed me what I was really like. Self-observation is to make you more and more objective to yourself self-objectification. If you can become more and more objective to yourself, you no longer take this thing to which you have been a slave as yourself. You really start to see it as it. You really start to see it as different parts. Oh, I'm possessed. My father's voice is speaking through me. I'm possessed. My teacher's voice is speaking through me. I'm possessed. My mother's voice is speaking through me. Whatever. It's my father doing this or my mother doing this or something that I acquired, some I that I acquired in the past, speaking, acting, doing, thinking, feeling through me, possessing me, taking me over and doing this. That's self-objectification. You begin to see yourself as an object that other eyes can possess if you don't possess yourself. And we don't possess ourselves. We are not in possession of ourselves. It's like, was it, was it last week I talked about the man who was feeding the swine and he was, he was longing to fill himself with, to eat what the swine's reading because he was so hungry? But then he came to his senses. What does that mean? It means he came into possession of himself. 
That's what happens. He, in a moment, he possessed himself. In a moment, he realized that he was hungry. He realized what he had done. He realized where he was. In a moment, just a flash of self-possession, he possessed himself. And in that moment of self-possession, he could make a decision and he could do. He could get up, leave what he was doing, and go back to his father's house and say, I'll be a servant. Don't even treat me as your son. Just treat me as one of your hired servants. I'll be happy with that. That was a man who was in possession of himself. But the one who was feeding the swines, that was not a man who was in possession of himself. How often are you in possession of yourself? Okay, Maybe you've never been in possession of yourself. Or maybe you've only possessed yourself three or four times in your entire life. Once when you were very, very sick near death. And another time when you had an accident. And then another time when you fell out of that tree and, and landed on your head and all of a sudden came to your senses or whatever. If I see it in myself, it is no longer me. It's no longer subjective, but it becomes an object to me. It becomes separate to me. So if I see this thing in myself, as myself, it's subjective. Well, this is me. I'm, it's completely subjective. But if I can see it apart from me, if I can see it as my father speaking through me, then suddenly it's an object. I'm no longer subjective. I'm now objective. It's like, oh, isn't that interesting? It's like standing in the mirror and shifting just one little bit to the left, and all of a sudden, I could see things entirely differently as they really were. It's the same exact thing. You just make a little shift inside of yourself, and then you see things objectively. But you have to be able to, you have to, be able to do that. that. That has to happen so that you know what it's like. If it's never happened, then you just keep working at it until it does happen. Then when it does happen, you store it in your work memory, and then you reference that so that you know how to get there again. You leave breadcrumbs, Hansel and Gretel, so that you can get back there and you hope the birds don't eat them before you, before you get back there. You never know when you go to sleep, when you wake up again. You never know when you get subjective, when you'll become objective again. So be vigilant. Stay awake. Stay alert. Don't go to sleep because you don't know when you might wake up again. The birds really may come and eat the breadcrumbs. The part of you that begins to see yourself as an object lies close to your true self. Your true self is unobservable. You can't really analyze it. You can't really observe it. You have to experience it. So we can't really talk about it. But we can say that when you begin to see yourself as an object, that is moving you closer to your true self. Taking as oneself what is not oneself leads to endless sleep in negative states. If you're in a negative state, it's because you've taken as yourself something that's not yourself. If you're asleep, it's because you've taken as yourself something that's not yourself. Becoming conscious of your true self is becoming objectively conscious, the fourth state of consciousness. Remember the four states of consciousness as given by this work. The first one is asleep on your bed. The second one is waking sleep. That's what people are doing all over the world today. They're walking around. So the difference between sleep on your bed and waking sleep is that in waking sleep, the moving center is active. It's the only difference. The moving center is active. They're just as asleep. It's just the moving center is active. And the third state of consciousness is self-consciousness. And you start to become conscious of yourself. And the fourth state of consciousness is objective consciousness. Those are the four states of consciousness as given by this work. Becoming conscious of your true self is being objectively conscious. When we reach this state, our ordinary sense of I disappears. Now, What's the big deal? Why are people so afraid of their ordinary sense of I disappearing? Because they're identified with their ordinary sense of I. 
And if that disappears, then they feel like they, they hit nirvana. Oh, I, I won't exist. I'll cease to be. I lose all of this. Yes, that's true. You do. Connected to ordinary I are all the usual troubles, cares, and anxieties of life. You'll lose all of those. Oh, no, no, not that. <laughs> when that I disappears, all troubles, cares, and anxieties go with it. No, no, not that, anything but that. I'm defined by my suffering. I'm defined by my negativity. I'm defined by my problems. I'm defined by all the things that happened to me. I'm defined that if only this had happened. I'm defined by my story. I am my story. Do you see why we cling to it? We're afraid that we will cease to exist. The more you make yourself objective to yourself, the more you lose your ordinary, unusual, worrying feeling of I. Put it that way, it doesn't sound so bad. It doesn't sound like we're taking that much away from you. But do you see the idea when the work says the one thing we won't sacrifice is our suffering? Because that ordinary sense of I is where all of our suffering is. But we will not sacrifice it. We will not give it up. We will not become objective to ourselves. We will not go for self-objectification. And so we continue to cling to our ordinary sense of I. But when we do begin to let it go, little by little, these are signs that one is moving toward higher levels of consciousness, moving toward objective consciousness. This isn't something that's just going to come upon you like a thief in the night and you're going to be objectively conscious. Don't think that you're going to be sitting here and one day pop. Oh! You're going to be like a guru or something. No, this is going to slowly sink in. You're going to slowly manifest this little by little, thought by thought, feeling by feeling, moment by moment. So relax, be happy. Take your time, enjoy the moment, enjoy what you have in your life right now. If you have woe and misery in your life right now, it's going to change. Suck everything out of it that you can get out of it so that you don't have to come back and do it again. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at SolidRockVista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.